You're listening to the flagship show of the Restoration Radio Network, the network for the thinking Catholic. And now, your host. And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. Wait, that's that's not my line. That's someone else's line. That's copyrighted. Welcome to the flagship show of member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and joining us today is the man behind that voice, Mario Dirksen. Hello, Mario. The mystery man. Hello. We have the great pleasure of being, if not the first, one of the first interviews to, let's say, get behind the scenes of what goes on at Novus Ordo Watch, which is Mario's full-time gig. But before we get to all that, Mario, tell us about how you came to authentic Catholicism. Were you born into traditional Catholicism? Oh, absolutely not. I was born into and raised in the Novus Ordo religion. And uh, that would have been, my childhood was in the 1980s. And until approximately 1994, I was really not very well educated in religious matters. I had gotten a standard Novus Ordo education and uh, it was around 19, I'm thinking 93, 94, that I first began to take religion more seriously and start getting into, you know, doctrine and what, do we, what should we believe and why does it matter? Your early teenage years. Yes. And what spurred that? Actually, from what I remember, it was a piece of unsolicited mail I got, which was uh, from some, you know, Protestant non-denominational, quote-unquote, evangelization network. Okay. And, you and know, By the way, if you're looking for EWTN— This, this ain't it. You got so it. So you got one of these pieces. In the mail, and I had, you know, I had been getting that for— years every so often, but I never really paid any attention to it. But what struck me at that point was that they actually took evangelization seriously. Mm. You know, they were actually concerned about leading souls to Christ. At least that was, you know, what I gathered was their intent. Now, never mind, they were Protestants, and so they were quite mistaken. You know, they're, they're preaching heresy, but unlike... It's not very sensitive of you. Oh, very much so, yeah. But... It was unlike the Novus Ordo religion, where really everything was pretty much focused on feeding the poor and helping the needy, which of course are also good works, but the soul and doctrine and those things really never seemed to be of any serious relevance to anything. So, I mean, this is the 90s. You didn't have the internet. Where are you looking for your information as you start to take Catholicism more seriously? Well, so I should explain. So, at that point, I was beginning to be, obviously, because of the literature I was reading that, I was beginning to be influenced, you know, to have a Protestant idea of things. Mm. But, and I knew, I mean, it said on there that they were Protestant. I knew this wasn't Catholicism, but I had such a poor understanding of religious matters that I didn't think, well, I thought you could just be quote-unquote Christian, right? And, and your that, parents didn't disabuse you of you of this, or did you talk to them about it? Um, not really. 
Uh, besides, I had no interest in ever joining uh, a Protestant church or anything. No, I absolutely wanted to stay in what I thought was the Catholic Church, and I wanted to continue to uh, go to what I thought was a Catholic Mass, um, but I thought that it didn't really so much matter what exactly you believed about these things. Mm. And besides, I really had nothing to compare it to. So when you get a Protestant um, tract, for example, right, a little booklet or something that talks about uh, salvation and their understanding of justification, do you think I had the faintest idea what the Catholic understanding of justification was? Mm. Uh, and especially in an ecumenical climate, it's very difficult uh, to even know what the difference is. Now, other things like purgatory, for example, I knew that Catholics, you know, prayed for the dead and they, that they believed in purgatory. So I knew when I was reading something against purgatory, for example, that that was contrary to Catholic teaching. But I figured, well, maybe the teaching is just wrong, hmm. you know. So... Um, I was beginning to take religion seriously. I, I was very confused about what, what teaching I should believe and why, but I'm just re uh, relating the story to show that that's what got me interested in, in taking religion more seriously, and you know, especially those issues, doc doctrinal issues and so on. Of course, it was a very bad influence in the sense that it you know, was spreading Protestant doctrines, but it uh, it is what got me into uh, taking religion seriously. So how long does this flirtation, you could say, with Protestantism go on? Uh, about two or three years, I would say. And then? And then what happened? Well, you know, then came the internet. And so, so at that point, I was, I, like I said, I was very ignorant of, of religious things. So I concerned myself a Catholic, a Christian, but I held several Protestant beliefs, mm. like, oh, this idea that, you know, what they call eternal security, once saved, always, always saved. saved, right? Um, I did not believe in purgatory at that point. I thought it was wrong to pray for the dead uh, and so forth. I did not believe in the papacy. And I knew at least those things, I know not so much about eternal security, but, uh, you know, the papacy and purgatory and these things, uh, I knew that was at odds with Catholic teaching. But I thought you could be a Catholic and just disagree with those things. Mm. Um, but then came the internet. And so at this point, we're in 1996. I remember very distinctly, my first time on the internet was January of 1996. When you say internet, are you like using a modem to call oh, up BBSs? Absolutely, and, yes, yeah. it, absolutely. The young people won't know what we're talking about. But. It was dial-up, yes. Oh, yeah. You're I, excited I for that blazing 57.6 speed. The 56K modem I had, I didn't know it. I was signing on to 28.8. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. That's what it sounded like. And boom, there it was. And so I started going onto these bulletin boards, they were called, which nowadays we call a forum, mm -hmm. I suppose, right? Where you can just post messages and other people see them and respond. And so I quickly found myself in religious forums and religious mm. bulletin boards. And so I'm, you know, going in under Christianity. Uh, it must have been. And what was your handle? Did you have some? Well, no, at that point, so that was through a service called Prodigy. 
Oh, and then you were like user 726 or something like I that. I was like, yeah, QXVV76B. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You were and, just a number. Exactly. And so, of course, there's also that anonymity, right, that comes with it. Hmm. And so I'm just posting things on there, and I encountered someone who was a Novus Ordo, but a well-educated Novus Ordo. And then I started kind of, uh, I think we ended up emailing each other. Uh, it wasn't just in public on these bulletin boards. And he began actually refuting the things I was saying. You know, I thought I was, I was, you know, giving the biblical message, right? And what I had never heard or seen before was, a, let's just call him a Catholic. That's what he was intending to be. And he was defending Catholic doctrines. All of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I'm finding there's a Catholic who can answer what I'm saying, and he's doing so using the Bible. I was floored. I had never seen that before. Okay. And then he gave me some book recommendations. He says, oh, you need to read some books, some good books. And one of the first uh, book recommendations I got was The Faith of Our Fathers by Cardinal James Gibbons, a phenomenal book. Uh, written probably, published in, I'm thinking, the 1880s, probably. Highly recommend it, which is especially— so it's it's an apologetics book uh, on the Catholic religion, uh, and it, with a heavy emphasis on refuting objections from Protestantism. Um, another book that I don't recall if that was— it must have been recommended to me. Either that or I somehow found it in, in my local high school library, which I was—I went to a Novel Sordo high school at that time— and uh, that was Theology for Beginners by Frank Sheed, mm. another great book overall. And it's not long. It's No, and it really, really piqued my curiosity, and it made me realize that I'm enjoying uh, these things. I'm enjoying uh, thinking about theology, thinking about God, uh, philosophical ideas, and, and so on. And uh, then the, the, the other, another book that I was recommended was Carl Keating's book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, which made a huge impact on me. Mm. And, you know, reading those books, you know, I um, realized, okay, you know what? I have now understood uh, that Protestantism is wrong. I understand what Catholicism is, and I am a Catholic. I want nothing to do with Protestantism. And... So I began to, and again, this is the early days of the internet, so you didn't have a whole lot of apologetics, a whole lot of information out there. I decided, I am now, now that I've learned how to refute Protestantism, and that these objections that the Protestants have are really bogus, they can't really stand up to the true faith— then, so I, at that point, I'm a conservative Novus Ordo, and it was my zealous desire to communicate to others how to refute Protestantism. Mm. And so, in 1997, I believe it was, I started coming out with my own private webpage, which at that point was phenomenal. I mean, right. you had your own website, are you? I'm thinking of GeoCities and, yes, and other sort of exactly constructions at that time. Yes, and... Um, yeah, at that point, you really didn't have your own domain name. Yeah, a website in the yeah. 90s, I mean, amazing. Yes, and I simply taught myself. I looked at other web pages, looked at their source code, and said, okay, I'll just replicate that, and I can see what they're doing here, and I'll just change that around, and let's see what happens if I hit publish. What, what does that look like, right? 
And right, and suddenly uh, there's a horse in the corner, you know, with a unicorn or something like that. So, oh, I need to back up. Yes, exactly. And so um, I decided to uh, make my own apologetics website, especially after realizing that there's no way every time a Protestant comes out with an objection to Catholicism, we, you can't run to the apologetics organizations like <laughs> Catholic Answers, you know, or or ask a priest every time, uh, you know. I just figure, you know what, I think I'm going to have to do it myself. And so, uh, in sort of makeshift fashion, I, I cobbled together my own website, which at the time was called Catholic Insight. And uh, that ran for a while. Meanwhile, I was joined. I decided that, and this was no doubt due to my initial zeal about uh, what I thought was Catholicism, I decided to join the seminary. Won't mention the diocese here. <laughs> That's to, not to, important. To, to protect now. the guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I joined the Novos Ordo Seminary. And of course, there they had a big problem with my website. They did not like apologetics, and and of course they liked I, apologizing. Yes, exactly. Um, they they uh, they had a big problem with my website, and of course I realize now, which I didn't then, that it's really not appropriate for a seminarian, you know, to have something like that, and you know, while he's being formed, and and, and anyway, but so they had me remove it eventually. I lost that battle, and uh, at that point. I am under the illusion that Catholicism is what is practiced in the Novus Ordo Church, right? And that this is what is taught and practiced. At that point, I'm, I'm thinking the world of John Paul II, this, this great defender, right? Of, Future doctor of the church, really. Yeah, absolutely. Witch doctor, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, it was at the seminary, though— at that Novus Ordo Seminary, that one of the more conservative seminarians, and you could tell very quickly that there was a group of conservatives and there was a group of liberals. Yeah, I couldn't stand the liberals. And what was the percentage? Was it 50-50 or was it? Oh, well, so I have to say that it was a bilingual seminary. So there were a few students that I simply couldn't communicate with because they had to learn English and I had to learn Spanish. So there was very little communication, so I really couldn't tell where they were, okay. what, you know. Um, so I can't say – so if we exclude that, I'm – Just among the English speakers? Yeah, I would say it was probably – it was just a handful of conservatives, and the others were either just real liberals or at least in the liberal – in you know, in that camp. Maybe not quite on the far left, but – uh, mainstream Novus Ordo, right? And so one of the more conservative seminarians, and I remember exactly, it was January of 1998, he gave me a copy of the Ottaviani Intervention. Mm. And we're talking the 10 books version translated by Father Giacata, right? right? And he said, don't let anybody catch you with this book. Now, if you want me to read something, that's what you have to tell me. Okay, I was super excited. Okay, that's exactly what I want, especially because on the front cover is Cardinal Ottaviani. This All isn't Joe. Yeah. This isn't Joe Blow. I could tell right away. Ooh, this is important. This is a cardinal, a conservative cardinal. There's an issue here. I started looking through it, right, and it's of course it's about the new mass and what's wrong with the new mass, and it's like the scales fell from my eyes. 
and I could see, oh my goodness, you know what? This is make this is making so much sense, right? And uh, and in in a way, like inside of me, it's like I always knew there was something wrong with this, but I just didn't know what. <laughs> and now this, I, I was loving this, and then I was getting more uh, literature from ten. Like I was eating up these these. Um, Michael Davies' booklets, liturgical shipwreck, the the Catholic sanctuary, I think it was called, right? All these little pamphlets. The, Ro- the Roman rite destroyed, I think, was one of those. That Michael was Davies one of those. Pamphlets. Yeah, Michael. Da- I loved Michael Davies, and and so that did a uh, that made a huge impact on me. And and I want to mention, pray for that seminarian who is really very instrumental uh, in my conversion because he is now a Novus Ordo priest in the Archdiocese of Washington. And, um, you know, I, I want to thank him for what he did, but I think if he had known what he what that would accomplish, he wouldn't have done it. <laughs> what he unleashed. Really. Yes, yes. But I am uh, forever grateful. And then I began probably on the advice maybe of the same seminarian, I started reading the old papal encyclicals, especially Pius Twelfth, Mediator Dei, right, on the sacred liturgy, Pius Eleventh, Mortalium Animos on ecumenism, Pius Twelfth, uh, Humani Generis on neo-modernism. All of these rigorous neo-Pelagian sort of ideas. Yes, and see, because I was in a seminary, and, you know, we had a library. They had all those encyclicals there in English. And so I, I had a great opportunity. Besides, they had a, a, a nice uh, novel sort of bookstore that, believe it or not, still reprinted those old encyclicals in oh, booklet amazing. form. Right? So I spent considerable time there, and I started buying all these encyclicals. And I, as I was reading them, I'm just thinking, oh, my goodness, the popes before Vatican II— condemned everything we're doing now. And of course, I, I had a very shallow understanding of these things, but, you know, if, if, the, if Pope Pius XII says that the, the altar should not be reduced to a table, that the altar should, excuse me, that the tabernacle should not be removed from the altar, that the, whatever it was, that, that, that black should not be uh, uh, removed as a vestment color, as a liturgical color, all these things, I'm thinking, well, this is exactly what we've done. Right, and the mass would not be in the vernacular, uh, and and uh, whatever it was, you know, communion under under only one kind, and so forth. It, it it just said, well, that's what we're doing, and especially on ecumenism. You know, I never liked ecumenism. I never did, not even as a conservative novus ordo. I always tried to kind of, you know, you try to de-emphasize the ecumenical stuff of John Paul II, right? And, and then you find some really conservative passage somewhere where whatever he might you have You try said. to explain what the, re- the Holy Father really meant. Yeah, exactly. We're like, oh, here, there's that footnote where he says that the, 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 only the truth will save you or something like that, right? Um, and so you kind of justify these things uh, for yourself. You rationalize. And uh, I mean, especially if you don't know the alternative, right? Um, but as I was reading Pius XI's Mortalium Animos, I said to myself, you know what, now that I'm hearing this, this is what I unconsciously always imagined a pope to be saying about ecumenism. This is how I would imagine a Catholic pope to speak about ecumenism. In other words, to slam it, to condemn it, and to say there's only one religious unity, and that is everybody has to convert to Catholicism, putting it bluntly. 
and all these ecumenical things. Uh, if they're not, if the goal is not to convert people to Catholicism, then it's false religious unity. And so that made so much sense to me. And again, a world was a new world was being opened before me. And of course, it was uncomfortable. But after two years of Novus Ordo Seminary, I said, I have to get out of here. This is not this is not my religion, right? And um, interestingly enough, you know, as I was going through all this literature, another book that was very important was the problems with the new mass. I think it was called. Come to the prayers of the modern mass. No, that as well. Oh, you're talking about the Kumaraswamy. Yes. Okay. Dr. Rama Kumaraswamy had published a book called "The Problems with the New Mass," and it was not very long. And I didn't care to read long books anyway. So that was perfect for me. And again, you know, I'm looking through. I had never been, I had never seen a traditional mass. I had only read about it. And I, you know, I said, okay, well, I'm hooked. I'm convinced this is the mass I need to go to. And in those days, I'm trying to remember now. So this would have been the summer of 1998. Uh, I was at a summer assignment as a seminarian in a parish. So this was my two seminary years were 97 through 99. So this was smack dab in the middle. I'm at my summer assignment. And for the first time, I had the opportunity of going to a traditional mass because there was a traditional mass nearby, which was really providential because uh, there weren't many in the diocese. And it was in the evening, so that... You could still do your duties. I could still do my Novus Ordo duty in the morning, and nobody would know or care that what, you were you know, what I was evening. doing in the evening. Okay. Well, you were smart enough not to tell them where you were going. Oh, you got that right. Yes. So here I am. It's the summer of 98, and I'm at my first tradition. It's an indult mass, of course, and it's in a Novus Ordo church. Now, a lot of people will tell you about their first experience of the traditional mass, and and they're they're just oh, they were the angels you know, came smitten, in, and yes, you know, it was all yeah. breathtaking. Well, it was not like that for me at all. Okay, I got there, and you know, after a while, I'm just thinking, what are they doing up there? I can't hear anything. I have no idea where they're at. They're, they're just mumbling something in Latin, and they're you know, I'm I felt totally left out. Hmm. And and that was simply the result of being, you know, growing up in the Novus Ordo religion. You, you're made to think that the Mass is about you. Or that active participation that, means opening your mouth. Yes, and that, that there's this, you know, rapport established between the, the, the presbyter and you, and then right, there's this how are you? How are you doing? Great, yes, Father. Yeah, exactly. Good morning. So... Um, it was uh, ra- a, a definitely a memorable experience, but not a terribly good one as far as like emotionally. In the natural and, order. Yes, in the natural order. I just, and you know, and, and I looked around and it wasn't that many people, but all these other people just, you know, had their head buried in the missile. And so it, I, I felt left out and I feel like no no one's paying attention to me, you know, like like I'm important there, you know. Um but that's what the Novus Ordo does to you. They make you think that, well, welcome to the community meal, and you're a part of it. And, uh, you know, I didn't realize they were, at least they thought they were, uh, you know, a sacrifice. I mean, um, they were offering the holy sacrifice to the Most Holy Trinity. But despite my initial negative emotional experience, or whatever you want to call it, my, my natural experience— Still, I was convinced in my mind that this is the true Mass. 
and mm. this I better go back. So I was not at all you weren't put off. off. No. Okay. No, because even though I it required major adjustment, I had read enough about it to know that this is good and the Novus Ordo is not. Okay. So I then had to return to the seminary after the summer break. How many more times did you go before um, you had to go back to the seminary? Well, the summer assignment wasn't all that long. It's probably eight weeks or so. Um, so I don't recall. And and I also don't recall if that was every Sunday, only once a month. Okay. Uh, but as I returned to the seminary, then, of course, what did I do? I got the conservative seminarians together, especially the younger ones. Hey, you know what I did this summer? Yes. See, at that point, I was no longer a first-year student. I was second year. So there was a, a new group of youngsters coming in, so to speak, right? Freshmen. And I uh, told them about, you know, the traditional mass. And I said, look, I checked in the yellow pages back in those days. use yellow pages. <laughs> And I found a traditional mass we can go to. I can't believe they advertised in the Yellow Pages, too. Well, you see, but I I was so ignorant of those things at that point, I didn't even think to consider indult mass or anything. I simply, if it said traditional mass, I went. Okay. It I, it didn't even occur to me at that point that, well, you know, there's a difference. Is is it SSPX? Is it set of a contest? Is it, um, is it indult? Is it something else? Sure. You know, who knows? But I got some of uh, the other students excited about this, interested in this. And so we had to wait for a, a convenient opportunity. Well, so sometimes when you – I remember the first time, I think, when I didn't – we didn't have class for an hour. And I just – a friend of mine and I, we just said, okay, you know what? Let's go. There's this beautiful uh, – well, I didn't know it was beautiful until I got there. But there's this traditional church. Let's go there. Okay, and it was, I think it was like 10.30 in the morning, in the, in the middle of the morning. We just went, and uh, I won't say now what church it was. It was not a diocesan church. And, uh, you know, there was mass going on as we walked in. And so we just knelt there, and of course, being raised in the Novus Ordo, when time, when time came for communion, what do you think we did? Walked straight up to communion, and received, too. And then afterwards, we talked to the, the clergy there, but... Um, it, which was also very interesting. And, um, and we got back to the seminary. Now, no one, whenever you didn't have class, you, you could just leave the, the, the property no and premises and do whatever, do grocery shop, whatever you wanted to do. So it was no big deal that, that, that we were gone. But then we wanted to go to the indult mass, which was on a, always on Sunday mornings. And Sunday mornings were problematic because we, we have seminary mass, right? Except for that one time when we'd had a retreat. We were on retreat, and they decided to do the vigil mass on Saturday night. So there was no seminary mass on Sunday morning. And so I got a, a bunch of us together, and uh, we figured, okay, well, let's hope nobody sees us because they're going to be asking, what are you I mean, doing? What were, you, were you in polo shirts, or were you dressed in something where you would be identifiable? Oh man, that that is I don't recall how we were dressed. Okay. We just knew You just didn't want any of the the faculty or people yes. who knew you to spot you. Okay. Exactly. And so we're all, you know, just probably at 7:30 in the morning on Sunday morning and we're all in the car driving off the the property and who sees us? Absolutely, the rector. So, he says, "Where where are you going?" You know, kind of it was probably very being casual, curious, but also he he knows who these people are. They're all just, part of a wing. Yes, and so and you know, I said, "Oh, I said, full father, we're going to mass." 
And he says, being the Novus Ordo presbyter that he well, you was. you went to Mass yesterday. Well, you meant to Mass yesterday, right? <laughs> and, I, and I just said, well, you know, Father, it's, a, it's an everyday thing, you know? <laughs> and afterwards, we're going to go to, you know, his parents' house here for breakfast. Oh, okay. Great. Social right. event. Yes. Whew. Oh, that felt great. And uh, so out we went, and we went to the adult Mass, and then went to breakfast, and, and so on. That was our first... Uh, that was my first indult mass in the seminary from, from where the seminary was. And, you know, it just, things kept progressing from there. And I just said, I, I got to get out of here. And so after two years I left. And uh, so ironically, it was actually the Novus Ordo seminary that made me traditional. Mm. Right. It made me quote unquote, but uh, that had that uh, influence. And, the, you know, God uh, writes straight with crooked lines, right? And so was, did you seek to enter a traditional seminary at that point? No, no. And I never, it's funny, but it just didn't translate at all. I see. Uh, there, there was, once I saw the, once I understood the traditional mass and the traditional priesthood, I immediately knew this is not for me. Okay. So uh, that was never... I, was, I, I never seriously pursued uh, the real Catholic priesthood. It also shows what a contrast that is to the Novus Ordo priesthood, you know. Mm. And so I uh, returned home. Of course, at that point, I was, uh, you know, at my parents' house, living in my parents' house. I, would, I was 20 at that point. And, uh, you know, I'm reading more and more about Catholicism. And around uh, 2001... Uh, or two, th- so I kept going to the indult mass uh, as I could, and in two thousand, I think it was two thousand one, maybe very early two thousand two, I started going to the Society of Saint Pius the Tenth because there was an SSPX church near, uh, fairly close to where I was living, and you weren't scared off by excommunication or schism or well. At that point, I'm, I'm trying to remember now what I knew or thought about the SSPX. I know they were, but, well, I thought they were weird. And, you know, like, should I really be there? But then I I thought, well, you know what, let me just, I, I don't remember the details, but I probably must have thought, well, I'm just going in there to pray. Okay, I'm, I'm just praying. Because it was just after 9-11, I seem to remember. And I'm like, okay, you know what, there's no reason I, I can't be in there praying. And then I got to their bookstore, you know, started picking up some of the literature. And of course, you know, they have those booklets like, uh, is the SSPX in Sism? Rome says no. Rome says no. And, and so I ate up all that stuff, sure. right? Now, I still have that literature. And I'm, and I'm glad I do because it's interesting to uh, still have it around and see, you know. And, of course, instinctively, I knew it doesn't make any sense for you to need permission from modernists to be Catholic. Hmm. So if 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 modernist well if rome is modernist i you know why why do i need permission from it they're destroying the faith mm-hmm. and look at what they've done to the mass look look at what they've done to souls and all that right i mean look at their ecumenism and so on if all of that is fine then sspx can't be wrong right, right? i mean it can't be that bad and so i began to you know very my, my whole conversion was very very gradual it was always just one step further and one step further. See, some people have this big moment where, you know, it, they, they convert, like you were mentioning in, an, in another episode um, about the, uh, 
There's people who come right from the Novus Ordo. From the Novus Ordo, exactly. That was not the case for me. And uh, although I can totally see that making sense, uh, absolutely. But I didn't have that information then. It was just step by step. I'm like, okay, we got got to stick to tradition. You know, these things are... You know, what was true in 1945 can't be wrong in 1995, right? Uh, So, and then, you know, the disobedience to modernist authorities was just kind of like, well, I mean, I guess that's what you have to do then. If they're doing everything wrong, what can we do but disobey? If we're going to be faithful to the the old uh, faith and to to the true tradition. But then came the year, I'm trying to think now, it must have been 2003, and I started to get in, now I knew about Sedevacantism, but I always avoided it. I uh, thought of it as, oh, this is schismatic. I'm not even going to read their, read their literature because it might convince me. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, uh, I don't want to go there. They're They're, you know, denying the Pope and... All that, just the standard, you know, right? And then, of course, you also, I, I must have uh, looked at whatever the SSPX had against Sedevacantism. And uh, so I was really happy in my SSPX world because I had the best of both worlds. You you had your sacraments, you had the old catechisms, you had all that, and you didn't need to, you didn't need to uh, explain how you were going to get a pope or, or anything like that. You could basically just put- Well, you your, had a pope. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, a, yeah, so you, you precisely because you had a pope and um, you had cardinals, you had a congo, you basically were just waiting and praying for better days to come. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the SSPX would be totally vindicated at that point, right? Archbishop Lefebvre carrying the torch. Of the church. Yeah, exactly. All of that. Uh, but then there were two main. Um, well, two main pieces of evidence that I came across and that I could not ignore. One was I, I became aware of what the Second Vatican Council said in its promulgation. That when Paul, in, in other words, it weren't just uh, what the documents themselves said in, in terms of their content. But what I didn't know, and I guess the SSPX never told me that, imagine that, uh, was that Paul VI solemnly promulgated each document with a formula. That formula— I, Paul, Bishop of Rome. Bishop of Rome was uh, used solemn language that I would say suggested infallibility, but if not at least, it was absolutely clear this is a solemn act of— pontifical authority of the vicar of purported vicar of Christ. Mm-hmm. So in other words, this like Paul VI that he was establishing all these things in the Holy Ghost and that they were being published for the honor and glory of God. Which which counters the SSPX narrative of pastoral council. Very much. Yes. It, or at least it puts it in perspective. I mean, what is a pastoral council? Still can't contain heresy. Right, it still can't contain any pernicious errors against uh, Catholic doctrine that is well established and that you have an obligation to profess. And so, at that point, I had a real problem because I, I, you know, I could see. Well, I mean, if words have meaning, 
then I can't accept. I mean, that that's just, that's preposterous. Either Vatican II is true and right and good and holy, or Paul VI wasn't the Pope. I mean, there's not that many options at that point. And uh, the other piece of evidence that I came across was the, well, I found it in Denzig, or I, mean, I shouldn't say I found it, someone told, someone showed it to me. You weren't just flipping uh, through your Denzig. Not Saturday at all. And, this, and the same with the Vatican II document. It, it was other people who had done the work. Flipped the page, pointed their aware finger, of it. had you read it. It was, it was a video. I, I don't want to mention the title here because I don't endorse the, uh, the organization that puts it out. Sure. But it does, ultimately doesn't matter who finds something, right? God in his goodness you know, made me aware of this. And uh, so the other was uh, the Apostolic Constitution Octorum Fide of Pope Pius VI. Hmm. I believe it's 1794, the year it was put out. And it's interesting because Octorum Fide is essentially a condemnation of the regional council or synod of Pistoia hmm. in, I believe, in northern Italy, which had taken place in, I think it was 1786. And the Council of Pistoia was a prototype of Vatican II. It is really uncanny uh, when you look at it. And one of the errors condemned in the Council of Pistoia, that Pius VI condemned, was the idea that the Catholic Church could establish discipline for the universal church that is harmful to souls— that is sacrilegious, that is impious, that is, you know, in any way uh, harmful to souls. And of course, that makes perfect sense. But considering that I thought the Novus Ordo Church was the Catholic Church, now I had a problem. Because I said, I cannot pretend that all these things, all these changes after Vatican II, that they're good and holy. So I, apparently, I cannot say if this is the Catholic Church, that these discipline, even if it's just discipline, right? forget, I mean, not to talk about doctrine, but just even just discipline, it can't be evil. And yet, Vatican II discipline, the post-conciliar discipline, clearly is evil in, 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 in many ways. So, it, for example, look at the new code of canon law, look at, you know, which allows unrepentant Protestants, in other words, not converts from Protestantism, but actual Protestants to receive Holy Communion for, uh, among other sacraments, also, I believe, uh, an anointing of the sick, extreme unction, and, and I believe penance, uh, under certain circumstances without renouncing their errors. Bam! Bam! There you go. Thank you. Um, and so that is, and, and that's not in danger of death. Not all, that is Just also if they express a desire for it. Yes, and, and they, under certain qualifications, they must believe. Like so, for example, with regard to the Holy Eucharist, they must believe in the real presence. Uh, this was all hand waved to me by conservative Novus Ordos. It's like, well, you know, if they believed all of this, then we know why shouldn't they? Said, so, well, if they believed all that, they'd be Catholic. Right, if you believe in the real presence and you want to receive all, it's like, why would you be a Protestant? Doesn't even make well, any see, sense. Well, see, but the canon, I think it's Canon eight forty four, number three, paragraph three. Um, there's also paragraph four talks about danger of death, but paragraph three does not. Hmm. And it mentions specifically, um, the Orthodox, uh, people like from the Eastern Orthodox religion or Protestants, in other words, right? So they're talking about baptized so-called Christians who are not in full communion 
they are permitted to receive Holy Communion if they believe in uh, transubstantiation, essentially, but they don't have to believe in the other dogmas of Catholicism. But they just have to believe in that sacrament, right? And then if the bishop considers it prudent and whatever, there's there's a few stipulations, not just willy-nilly, but it's still, you can tell it's an evil discipline because that is never permissible. And so... That was one thing. Then another thing was the in 1993, John Paul II promulgated the directory. I can't. It's a long name. Basically, a directory for applying ecumenism. Mm-hmm. How to ecumenical directory is the short name of it. Uh, possibly directory for the application of norms and principles on ecumenism. Something okay. like that. Awful title. And. It essentially takes the, the the teachings of Vatican II and implements them and says, okay, here's how we're going to apply this. This is what you're allowed to do. This is what you're not allowed to do. Here's what you should do, and so on. Take the mark of Shiva, kiss, <laughs> kiss the Quran. That Francis might issue that one. Um, uh, uh, but no, it says, it, it legislates in there that uh, under certain circumstances, Catholics should have shared churches with Protestants. Mm. In other words, they share the same worship space, what we would call a sanctuary. Okay, so for example, the nine o'clock liturgy might be Lutheran, and then the 11 o'clock is the Catholic Mass, or mm-hmm. the, the new Mass, of course. Right? Well, maybe you'll have an indult after that. Yeah, perfect, right? And that even under certain circumstances, you could even share the uh, Eucharistic, ch- I, I should, I don't want to misspeak here, um, like you would be allowed, to, or the bishop would be allowed to lend the Catholic chalice and patent to the Lutheran for their service, okay? If there is whatever the condition was, like, you know, if, if they don't have all the paraphernalia they need for their service. And you think, that, that's, that's a complete sacrilege. This, and this is how you know ecumenism really is evil, because you look at how do they understand ecumenism? Right? It's not enough to say, oh, well, I know this 89-year-old priest who uh, lives in you know, southern Colorado, and he found a really good explanation for how you can understand Vatican II in an orthodox sense. It's completely irrelevant because that is unique to him. Mm-hmm. What matters is how Rome understands Vatican II, right? and we have decades of the post-conciliar magisterium making that clear. So the only way to understand Vatican II is how the Vatican II religion understands it, right? How the post-conciliar magisterium interprets it. That is what, it doesn't matter what Father Ripperger thinks about it, Father Harrison, uh, or any of these. Robert uh, Barron. Robert Barron, exactly. It simply doesn't matter. What matters is what comes out of Rome. And that is what did come out of Rome, that, that directory on ecumenism. And here you can see, this is evil. And there's no way, if you if you immerse yourself in the pre-Vatican II teaching, the catechisms and the the theology books and, and just the literature. The encyclicals as you did. Yes. Uh, also, you know, just uh, works like the uh, homiletic and pastoral review, you know, these journals and all these, you get a very clear picture of what Catholicism is and it condemns all these things that the Vatican II religion uh, has been doing. And so at that point, you know, so as I'm being made aware that the Catholic Church cannot legislate evil, and yet the Novus Order Church clearly did legislate evil, well, I knew what I had to conclude. There was only one conclusion, and I didn't like it. All right. I didn't like it one bit. This is, we're talking now about the year 2003. 
uh, I believe it must have been uh, September or so, I had just been confirmed by an SSPX bishop earlier in the year when I was still SSPX. So at that point, I struggled with, well, what do I do? Should I? Of course, I start, you know, you do the, the first thing I always like to do is, okay, if there's an issue with something, just don't change anything just, just for the moment. Just relax and, and try to figure it out. Just you keep doing what you've been doing and you'll just figure it out, you know, keep at it. But you don't need to, you know, freak out about this and then, you know, drop everything. And at least that was my approach. And so I, you know, of course, tried to, you know, the, the pastor at the SSPX uh, church, God rest his soul, he tried to, he, he was sympathetic, but he tried to, of course, keep me from embracing set of accountism. And he wanted me to listen to, and he gave me a tape or two by the notorious Father Gregory Hess. Who doesn't know him? Canon Hess. Canon Hess, yes. And uh, God rest his soul, too. He died in 2006. And uh, that simply did not convince me at all. I I could, I had already figured out pretty much how ironclad the the state of Arcana's case is. And these things, I I forget what the, I said the tape probably just spoke about uh, probably formal material heresy and, you know, we can't judge this and we can't judge that. And I thought, no, you don't understand. That's not even the point. The point is the Catholic Church can't give evil, and the Novus Order Church has given evil, so whoever runs the Novus Order Church can't be the vicar of Christ. Hmm. That's that's all it is at the end of the day. Forget about heresy trial and formal material. It's That's peripheral stuff. Of course, John Paul II was a heretic, but— you, technically, you you didn't you don't need to believe that in order to draw the conclusion that he wasn't the pope. And as you point out, it really doesn't depend on the personal heresy of this or that claimant. It's the orientation of this Vatican II religion. Yes, you can totally take the person of the purported pope out of it and just focus on the institution. And at that point, I also listened um, to a talk from John Daly who in 2002 had given a conference together with uh, John Lane and Jerry Matatix was also part of it, who wasn't the state of a contest yet at that point, in New York. And somehow I had gotten the audio of that. Um, and John Daly's talk was entitled The Impossible Crisis. And that was also very influential in my career, because that really cemented everything. It, it really just... Um, made my position really firm because I could, he laid out so clearly that forget the the person of the Pope, true or false Pope, just forget the person for a minute and just look at the church, look at the institution. Can this be the church of Christ? And we're not talking about, you know, things like human failings, right? Michael Matt of the Remnant loves to talk about the human element. Forget the human element. That's people who are sinning. Yes, we have sinners, you know, in the true church and the fall, we're just sinner, sinners everywhere. That's not the issue. The issue is those very things that the church must be infallible in or indef- and indefectible and infallible at least in the sense of being infallibly safe, that she cannot, the church cannot lead you to hell, right? If the Catholic, if you follow the Novus Ordo Church, um, you will be let into blasphemy, sacrilege, heresy, and 
uh, impiety, all of those things. Pachamama. Pachamama. Exactly. You will be led to hell. I mean, objectively speaking. And, and the objective is, is all that matters anyway. The subjective is between the individual and God. God sees the intentions. God sees the state of your soul and so on. That's not what we're talking we're not, we're not trying to judge people like in the internal form. We're just talking, we're just looking at what does this church teach? And is this, is this Catholicism or is it not? Is this developed Catholicism from the, well, it's not. It's a corruption of Catholicism. And man, you know, we're now in the year 2022. If you can't see now that this is a corruption of the Catholic religion as it was known exclusively throughout the world in 1958, I'm not sure what else it would take. Well, that's just because you're not down with the hermeneutic of continuity. Yeah, that hermeneutic of continuity. Boy, is, is, is that a ruse, you know? And, well, you, you can test that hermeneutic of continuity. Um, just go into your local Novus Ordo church and try uh, teaching the doctrine contained in Mortalium Animos, and uh, you'll be kicked out faster just than try you try receiving can. communion on the tongue. Yeah, exactly, or even that. Uh, so it's, it's not true to say that they never refuse communion to anyone. They do if you're kneeling. For example, oh yes, never mind if you're, you know, uh, a well-known abortionist or anything. That's not going to matter. Uh, what matters is, you So know, you weren't dissuaded by Canon Hess and— Not in the least. So Catholic insight is reborn. Well, so, glad you brought that up uh, because now it gets interesting. In 2002, 2002 was a very difficult year um, because— I think it was probably January. That was the year the Boston Globe bro- uh, broke the story about the sexual abuse scandal mm. and uh, in the Novus Ordo Church. But I guess to an extent also reaching into the 1950s or whatever. In any case, it was just if, you know, you wanted to be a faithful Catholic and it, it was rough, right? Because no, but true church, false church, it always reflects on everybody, right? And um, there, there was so much scandal and there were so many terrible stories coming to light that year that I said, okay, you know what, we, 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 I've got to somehow start compiling a list of these links and kind of uh, keep that, like save that for posterity and just start showing like this is how bad it is. So 2002, I'm not a state of a contest at that point. And I, on Catholic Insight, which is long defunct, I, I long removed it. On Catholic Insight, I started on, on the homepage, there, there was a little section that I created that I called Novos Ordo Watch, because it was the section with those links that kind of showed how bad the Novos Ordo Church was. And it's interesting because I called it Novos Ordo Watch, even though, of course, at that point, I really thought it was the Catholic Church. Hmm. But it became so much, and, and the stories were so important and, and so hard to be like, whatever, it was Novus Ordo priests endorsing abortion from the pulpit. It was just really bad stuff where everybody says, oh my goodness, this is terrible. If only people knew about this. And so this section grew, grew bigger and bigger. And I said, you know what? It's probably a good idea. We just, well, I'll make a website dedicated to just that. Guess what I called it? Novus Ordo Watch, mm. right? At that point, so I registered the domain name 
2002? It was 2002, yes. Okay. I re- in, in fact, I can, you know, I looked up in the domain records. It was registered on September 3rd, 2002. Oh. How providential the Feast of St. Pius the 10th. So even though I technically don't remember when I put up the the, anything on that domain. Um, I, it must have been November of that year. I consider September 3rd the founding date oh, of Novus Ordo Watch, right? And so for approximately the first year, Novus Ordo Watch was not Sede Vacantis because I was not. I started in the beginning. So my, my, my thought at that point for what did I want Novus Ordo Watch to be was basically a, a, a collecting uh, a bin for all the scandals of the Novus Ordo Church, the liturgical abuse, the, the, the terrible priests, like the immoral priests, what, what, what kind of advice they were, like all the news stories. And was the idea, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shock the zombies into taking a look at the issues? Um, the normies will see this and they'll think twice? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the most um, the most pertinent thought behind it was we want to have a po- like a, a place where people can go that need to know about these things. So it's not enough, for example, you know, if you're, if you're in a conversation with someone, right, and you're trying to remember at that point I, w- I was not sort of a contest yet. So I just wanted to convert people to traditionalism, right, to tradition, uh, as I thought. Quote, and, unquote. Yes. And um, it's not enough to just say in, in, in a conversation, oh, but I once saw something where this priest did such and such. Or I remember there was this, this the, at the commencement speaker, whatever, at Notre Dame, he, he pushed, you know, uh, homosexual issues or something, right? You needed a place, because if, unless you have a place where that stuff is collected and linked and, and all, right, where it's referenced, you're just going to say to your conversation partner, oh, I'll, if I find it, I'll send you a link, right? So it really doesn't really go anywhere. And it's not very compelling to just say, oh, yeah, I once saw something or I once read something. Right. So I wanted to provide a space where all these things, um, the truth about the, the Novus Ordo Church, the, about all these abuses and, and these heresies, these awful, awful things were collected. And I, and I think um, I want to say... Don't recall uh, completely now, but I think it was mostly supposed to. The idea was mostly to expose liturgical abuse, clown masses, and all these things. And Nova Sorta Watch is still known for producing those high quality stories. Yeah, there's definitely. If, if, if I want a shocking picture, I know we're, we're not lacking in uh, yeah material for that. That's for sure. Uh, but I didn't have I didn't have a whole lot of like vision for what this might one day become. It was just that a, was, something part-time. You had you had a regular job. Of course, yes. And uh, that, that was, I just, I just wanted to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And with, with no big plans or, or anything, I've never been the kind that can look ahead, you know, five or 10 years into the future and, the, oh, once I get there, I'm, I want this and such and such to, uh, to be accomplished. I, I was never like that. I just, I was more of like, here's what I'm going to do today and we'll see about tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so the first year, uh, Novus Ordo Watch was not Sede Vacantis. But, you know, it's interesting because that was actually helpful as far as getting the word out because nobody would have wanted to click on the Sede Vacantis website, right? So at that point, um, at that point, 
novel sort of watch was uh were liked by a lot of people and and so word of by word of mouth and you know it spread rather quickly i think uh and and i guess you know it it really by god's grace it, the name is also very striking i think it's a it's a good like a brand name if you will mm-hmm. uh it works well and um it, and it as is. I'm reflecting on it now, Nova Sorter Watch it doesn't say your set of a contest in the sense of if I hear that and I've never heard of the site before, like, oh, they're watching the Nova Sordo. That could they could be a conservative Nova Sordo site hearing it for the first time if you don't know anything about it. It's not a the name's not committed very to, much to so, a particular yes. idea. So I think that that was helpful as well. Yes, yes, exactly. So, you know, a lot of traditionalists love Nova Sordo Watch and um until, of course, it went state of a contest, right, in 2003. Uh, maybe it was 2004. Don't, and then you don't had the grand exodus. Um, yeah, I, I don't remember really how how that went. But uh, for for the longest time, it was, it was essential. Well, at least it seemed to me for the longest time. I guess in retrospect, maybe it was uh, not all that long. But for years, for sure, it was essentially um, – what is now what would, it it was basically what is now known as the um periodic news digest novel sort of watch did not have any big articles i mean that was a rare thing it was essentially a collection of links to scandalous and horrific novel sort of stories which you can still get in the monthly digest <laughs> yes. So, uh, and it's interesting how that developed. So you would find like, you know, people would come on Novel Sordo Watch every day and every day there'd be three or four more links. There was always something new, which kept keep people coming back. Well, eventually I converted just, you know, technology um, does not stop. Technology advances. And at some point I figured, okay, well, if, if we want to uh, advance here, if we want to be we don't want to be left behind. Uh, now there's all this technology with embeddable YouTube videos and all this wonderful stuff. I think they call it the Web 2.0. Uh, it looks like we're going to have to do a little bit of upgrading here. And I knew it was going to be a lot of work. I wasn't particularly looking forward to it, but especially I wanted to have the capability of RSS feeds, right? So that you can, uh, for those who are not familiar with that, that is super important now. It, it basically broadcasts any updates to your blog to whoever subscribes to the RSS feed. Um, I guess that sounds a little abstract, but it is crucial. Uh, if you if you want to play with <laughs> the, the big boys, if you want to play in the big league, uh, you absolutely need an RSS feed that notifies subscribers that the blog has been updated mm. and that there's something new there. And that wasn't possible on the old technology. So I knew I needed to switch over to a blog format. And I thought at first, you know, but blog format, that's not going to work because what am I going to do? Put one blog post for each link that I put up? That's kind of, I don't know, that that just doesn't seem, uh, it, it doesn't seem effective and it's going to look funny. And so I, I want to say almost out of necessity, I knew I had to make each blog post a little bit more substantial than just putting a link. And out of that grew uh the 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 frequent blog posts that we have now and at the same time i still wanted to keep the news links up right i still wanted to have that practice of of summarize because there's so much garbage that takes place 
on a daily basis, so much chaos throughout the world in, in, in what passes for the Catholic Church, for Catholicism, that it is, there's just no way I can just leave all these stories by the wayside and just write, you know, an article, crank out an article now and then. Uh, there's just, you know, this information still needs to be collected and people need to be made aware of. And that's what we now have as news digests. Ideally, I'd like to have them once a month, but uh, I think the last one, I w we just issued one and uh, I think that was more like going on two months. So it's just... Um, Which would have made it massive, I'm certain. Absolutely massive. And, you know, you don't see all the stories I delete and ignore. <laughs> Right. These are just the ones that actually the ones make, that it. make it. Yes. And it's, you know, I, I consider it in a way a big distraction because I'm thinking I would much rather put my mind to, an, you know, a new article than to go through to, you know, it was 137 links that I went through. And it probably ended up being like 70, about half or so. Does it still get a lot of traffic, the News Digest? Compared to other posts? It's usually not a big hitter, okay. compar comparatively speaking. But I, to be honest, I don't really keep track of, of traffic numbers. Um, I, there's a little indicator on WordPress that kind of tells me the last 24 hours. And, um, and usually when I put out a news digest, that doesn't move the needle, okay. uh, at least not significantly. And I know, I mean, see, of course, the most traffic you will drive with a great headline and a great picture, right? Title picture. So News Digest is not a great headline and not a great uh, picture. But so an interesting example of what got you here won't get you there. That that's that's what created Nova Sordo Watch, but Nova Sordo Watch evolved, obviously, and evolved from a part-time endeavor in which you ostensibly had a job Certainly. and made the leap <laughs> full-time job, yes, full-time Nova Sordo watching. And describe the evolution you're thinking and 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 what made you decide to take such a risk. Yeah, it, it, and it, of course, a risk it was. So I, I had a well-paying uh, full-time job by the grace of God. And, you know, I'm spending every free minute, right, of my spare time. Uh, Lunch breaks? No, not that. Oh, no, 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 no. I wanted none of that, uh, Have you know, any sort of uh, connection to my work, my secular work. So I was faced with the problem that I just couldn't do it anymore. I'm thinking, you know what? There is so much to do. There's so much that needs to be said, that needs to be exposed, that needs to be explained and refuted. I, I just can't do it anymore. And, you know, a friend of mine had kind of dropped a hint. Well, you know what? Why don't you just do go full time? I mean, just, you know, um, just try to make it happen. I'll, I'll help you out. You know, I'll, I'll help you start it. And were you already collecting donations when you were even part-time? Um, there was... Like you had a uh, PayPal box or something? I, there must have been. You know what? This is really great. There, there was a PayPal option and, uh, you know, you got an occasional donation, but... Um, but not enough to make you think, wow, you know, all I have to do is push... Oh, heavens, no. Okay. No, no. And so this was speculation on your friend's part. Yes. Because you didn't have any sort of financial proof to say, see, look what what, what the trend did no, over not the last at all. six months. Not at all. He just uh, guessed. He just thought that he's, he's just in general, he's he's the kind of guy that wants to uh, encourage people to, you know, make their hobbies into a full time job and, and just kind of, you know, realize your dreams kind of a thing. And um, so I, th I said, you know, of course, you know, prayed a lot. And also at my secular job, it was it was 
I really enjoyed it. I spend a lot of time working in Excel. I'm, I'm a real Excel guy. And uh, but you know the, la- the last year or so was was not that much fun anymore because things change in business world. You get you know different boss and and just the, the, everything changes constantly. Everything's constantly in flux. Okay. Then they you know they move you somewhere else and and so I just it was a good opportunity for me to actually uh, get out. Um uh, and so I said you know what I'll do it. I'll do it. And I was able, before I made that decision, though, I wrote to, I wrote a letter to, I I don't know, maybe a dozen or two individuals that I thought either I knew or I suspected would be interested in supporting an endeavor like this financially. Um, And just thought, hey, I'll I'll explain to them what I want to do. And if they would, if they would like to commit to making a contribution, uh, great. If not, that's fine, too. I, but I figure you you won't know until you ask, and I made clear I'm sure that I by no means expect them. Like I'm not the kind of guy that you know expects others to, like ooh now you have to like donate to my cause because oh look what I want to do. It's totally their decision. No hard feelings. If you say no, no problem. And so some responded positively and some responded negatively. C- completely normal. And um, you know some made larger donations as a startup. You know and. Uh, some made smaller donations and and I thankfully I was financially stable enough to where I could say I won't even pay myself a salary until a few weeks after I I go full time okay and um and that's exactly what happened and and yes it was a risk but sometimes in life you have to take risks and it, it all the signs pointed to like yeah this is God's will do it and thank God and 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 what year is this just a situation that is 2016 Okay. Yes. 2016, I believe it was February. So you had been Nova Sorto watching for 11 years at that point. Well. Or longer. There, um, so it began in 2002. Now, there's something I didn't mention yet, and that is that from the year 2006 to 2012, I had an, a, a friend of mine, uh, he took over Nova Sorto Watch for me because I needed to focus on other things in my personal life. And um, he ran it for those years, and I contributed an occasional article. And this is really where I started writing articles to begin with. And um, so he did that until 2012, uh, when I offered to take it back and say, you know what, I think we can really, really make an impact. And, you know, 2012 was a time when Society of St. Pius X was flirting with Rome, they were about to make an agreement, it seems, at that time, and that was Benedict's last days in, in his fake office, um, which, of course, we didn't know then. But that was a significant year, 2012, where there was a lot happening. And it was also because it was towards the end of, of Benedict's uh, tenure there that, um, you know, that the semi the people I call the semi-traditionalists, the recognize and resist traditionalists, they were they were just in love with Benedict. It was the restoration of tradition. And look, he's he's just had this, he's agreed with us now that pro multis is the correct translation, right? Not the pro omnibus in the new mass of for you, uh, for you and for all versus for you and for many. And when you actually looked at what he said, it wasn't even true. He he said, yes, pro multis, right? He, he um, mandated that that be used from now on not the for all anymore. So in the Novus Ordo, I guess they now say for many. 
I, I haven't been to Nova Zora, obviously, right? But um, uh, he still said that the pro-omnibus for all was still correct, right? He did not disavow that, which, which is also typical Ratzinger. Ratzinger has always been a both-and theologian. Mm. In everything he does, that's why you have in Samorum Pontificum, it's both the traditional and the new mass. Both Pope and Emeritus. Yeah, exactly. You can, perfect example. You can see there, he is Pope and he isn't. He kind of is, you know, like it's always this thesis, antithesis, synthesis. There's always that Hegelian in him. He does it with with uh, the, the, the covenant never revoked, you know, for the Jews. There's always this both, well, new covenant and also kind of still sort of this Jewish covenant. A very Lutheran. It's... Whenever you look at Ratzinger resolving, you've got it with the hermeneutic of reform in continuity. That's what he calls it. It's not rupture. It's it's reform not of, reform of the reform. Uh, right. So it implies there was a reform, but it mm-hmm. still needs to be reformed. Although I don't know if Ratzinger was ever into. Oh, he was. was he? Yeah. Yeah, I followed that. I oh, was, okay. I was big in reform of the reform. Yeah. So with Vatican II, you had the hermeneutic of rupture or the hermeneutic of nothing's changed, and he proposes, well, it's both a rupture and nothing's changed. Right. So he's got that synthesis again of hermeneutic of reform in continuity. In other words, you've got a little. You've got reform. Right. You, you've got rupture. It does something new and something the same. So uh, that's a typical, typical Ratzinger. And that was, as you were saying, 2012, and you took taken the site back over, yes. which gives you four years four to years. ramp up to 2016. Mm-hmm. And I remember the early days of his Restoration Radio was 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 going was a going concern at that point. Mm-hmm. And I remember the full time thing, and I remember supporting it, and I just thought, wow, this is a big deal. Just thinking personally, uh, uh, from a business standpoint, it's like, well, this is a lot to do. And I remember the days of the the, the drives, the fundraising drives. And I, I mentioned to you before that I don't see those anymore. And I think in part, you had said, we only do the fundraising drives to hit this number. When we hit the number, we're done. Yes. And uh, oh, those of us who went to Noah Sordo's schools, we all remember, you know, selling gift wrap or selling cookies or selling chocolate. But it was just... We never wanted to do it, but we had to. Yeah. And so I remember those fundraising days. I knew that you you didn't necessarily want to do it, but you had to in order to keep the site going. But I don't see those fundraising days anymore, so I think you're long past that. Yeah, well, God willing. Uh, yeah, let's see. So I think the last two years we didn't have any – when we say fundraising, the, the, those were appeals put up usually during Lent. Um Give alms. Uh, r- right, and that specifically offered people – a tangible product in exchange for a donation. Um, so, and I mean, good, wholesome Catholic educational materials, uh, books, uh, most of them I think were doctrinal or polemical, controversial books, like about the new mass and the, the new church. and But also, uh, you know, for example, Liberalism is a Sin, that wonderful classic from Father Felix Sarda Salvani. And uh, or uh, then also uh, some spiritual books. Um, I don't bring up probably the Imitation of Christ or something from Saint Alphonsus, and maybe something on moral theology. So it was all um, it, it was a good mix. And I figured, you know, it's this way. You really um, it, it just I don't know what it is, but people are more willing to make a donation that way exceeds the price of the book, of course if uh, they can get something in return. And I say, you know what, that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, I'm the same way. 
right? If 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 you were asking just for say a donation, let's say of a hundred dollars, well, you might say, eh, I don't know, man, maybe maybe I'll skip that for now. But if if it says, hey, get get this great book for a hundred dollars, the book itself is worth fifteen or whatever. But you, yeah, you're just a, it's more a fundraising principle. Yeah, and uh, that's nothing wrong with that. These were good books, and I was very happy to be able to spread the the, the literature. Um, at the same time, of course, it is a lot of work in the background because all these books have to get purchased. They have to get, um, I mean, you, warehouse. Even, they have to get boxed. <laughs> they have to be shipped. Well, thankfully, I didn't do any of that myself, or only in a very minimal uh, fashion. Um, most of these were just dropship orders from stores like Amazon or Tan or the uh, MIQ Center. Um, but it's still, you had to, uh, the accounting for all that had to be right. You had to write down who made a donation, what do they qualify for, what did they want, did, was it sent to them, uh, uh, how much yeah, is so that? Fulfillment is a big deal. Fulfillment is a big deal. So with all of that, I said, look, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm so grateful that people are helping to uh, support this financially and helping to make this happen. And I'm glad I can help them, you know, get these books. But of course, it would be, um, I would have to spend a lot less time worrying about this um, if I didn't have to do it. So uh, I'm glad right now, um, you know, thank God, Noble Sword of Watch, uh, by the grace of God, is financially stable. And that's good because you also need, you need a little bit of cushion. You, you can't live hand to mouth. Um, you know, what if, I mean, donations may dry up. I have no idea what's going to happen. So you, you need to be able to operate for a while uh, during which you do some more fundraising. So, but yes, my, my principle very much is I'll only do fundraising if it is needed. I am not interested in draining people of money, uh, you know, and just because uh, people have money available, therefore I want it. It's not at all how I, how I operate. So the only thing, like if there's enough donations coming in either see some people make monthly donations they commit to a monthly amount I am, and then, I am a monthly subscriber oh, oh that's right there you go uh, thank you very much and um, the other the the other uh, way people contribute is simply sporadically they'll just make a spontaneous donation maybe Maybe they listen. I love to that it. idea. They wake up in the morning and say, "You know what? I have that Nova Sordo watch. I need to write a check." Yeah. Well, see, and of course, I don't know what what triggers those sporadic donations, right? I don't. It, maybe they listen to a podcast where there's always a reminder at the you end. Mean that. Podcast. Podcast. Right. Um, it could be that, and it could be that that's something that they really appreciate and said, "Oh, you know what? Here, I'll make a donation." Or maybe maybe they'll just uh, remember. Oh yeah, I think I wanted to make a donation. Or they oh, they'll there's maybe something happening in their life where they something Novel Sordo Watch gave to them came in very uh, hand, handy was very useful to them. They say, oh you know what I'll, I'll make a donation to help keep this going. Hmm. And uh, so I'm so glad. I'm very thankful to all of the donors. You know every I mean people give whatever they're able to, whatever they're willing to. And, you know, some give a lot, some give a little. It really doesn't matter. Um, it, it's, you know, by the and grace we're, of... I, I'm grateful to those donors, too, because Nova Sordo Watch is a great resource for us and our team and for everybody. So we, we're, we're thankful to those donors as well. Yes, thank you. And and so it, you know, a subscription model was never an option for me to where you, you know, have a paywall and, um, you, you know, you get you see the full content only if you pay a certain amount. Like, for example, as you have with 
Church Militant, uh, the Michael Voris's organization. Um, and of course, now True Restoration has that kind of a model, mm-hmm. and it's totally appropriate for True Restoration, but it wouldn't be for Novus Ordo Watch because the people we're most trying to reach are the ones that wouldn't get a subscription. Sure. And, and the other side of it is you're a giant news aggregator, so you draw on an enormous audience, whereas True Restoration is a non-unicum course subscription site. So come here to get your nerdy Catholic content. It's a completely different uh, subscriber base than Novus Ordo Watch. I come to get information before I might come to. It's a gateway drug. Right? Novus Ordo Watch gets me, <laughs> gets me the information, and then maybe I come to a True Restoration if I'm interested. Uh, and Nova Sorta Watch has sponsored so many uh, episodes uh, of Restoration Radio to make that free, which is your mission, getting mm-hmm. this free content into the hands of people, and then they can decide what they're going to do with that, hopefully in, in concert with Grace. Yes, exactly. And so in, in that sense, you know, what Nova Sorta Watch does, I mean, we're a nonprofit organization precisely for that reason. We don't exist to make a profit. And uh, what that means with a nonprofit organization is not that you can never make a profit, but if you do make one, it stays in the business, it stays in the organization, and it has to be used on uh, what the organization aims to do. It has to be used in in, in concert with that charitable purpose. Mm. So uh, that is a that is a beautiful thing, and uh, I am the only uh, paid employee, and. I do, uh, thankfully, have some what I call informal associates, uh, informal volunteers who who help with things here and there. Some uh, will give advice. You know, sometimes you just have to discuss certain things. You have to bounce some ideas off of somebody um, to know what to think about something or to just to test an argument. Um, so that is very helpful. Some people help with translations. Okay, I have uh, two, for example, that I uh, can consult pretty much at any time specifically with regard to Italian. There's a lot of news that first gets um, released in Italian or where I need to know, look, this is what Francis said verbatim in Italian. Does it have this possible meaning? I need to know these things because we want to provide content to uh, our audience that is reliable. There's nothing worse than an unreliable news and commentary website mm-hmm. where, you know, every other story you find out, oh, that's not really how it was. And that no, that's the wrong translation. You're relying on Google or, you know, that, that that's terrible. And I know it's very tempting and I've made mistakes, you know, like that in the past, I, definitely where, um, but it, it's, it's better to not be the first guy to break a news story and make sure it's right than to always be trying to break the news and then find out later, oh, actually, that's not what you thought it was. Mm. And so, uh, yes, I, I hope I'm hope I'm not forgetting anyone. Uh, so, yes, there is a uh, and, and so these are volunteers; they're not paid. Uh, correct. There is one. There is one uh, individual who is also a writer who um, gets paid for his work. That's a, on a contract basis. And those articles are uh, published under the pen name Francis Del Sarto, and they're usually very long. And they're very good. Uh, they're very well, very thoroughly researched. And um, so that is, that's the content we publish. And then, of course, you've got the podcasts. And um, every day at Novel Sarto Watch is different. 
Yeah, what's a day in the life? <laughs> because just pick a random day, I suppose. I, it, because you just never know what's going to happen. You, you you start the day and you think, okay, here's like you just have in your mind, here's what I'm going to do today if nothing happens, which could include. Well, so uh, for example, one of the things I have in the cooker um, is a response to the Reverend John Hunwick, who um, has and he's been he brings it up every seems like every uh, opportunity he has. He's got this thesis going about how the magisterium is in suspense currently. It's suspended. Okay, and that's how he can that's how he can reconcile Francis teaching all these heresies and doing all this garbage, right? And this this apostate declaration on human fraternity. Oh, Hunwick has a very easy answer. Oh, magisterium is suspended. Basically, doesn't count. Where's he got that idea from? Well, he thinks he gets it from Cardinal Newman, and of course, since he he Hunwick is a convert from Anglicanism, Cardinal Newman is everything to him, and um, so. I've done some initial research. I've already begun writing the post, um, but it's going to need some more very serious work. And I think, I, I haven't completely researched it yet, but I think he has misunderstood Cardinal Newman quite a bit there. And, um, but... And then a break for lunch, assume, assuming, after dealing with that post. Oh, no, no. So that's in my mind, for example, that could be something... So let's say you were working on that in the morning. Yes. And you might take a break. Yes. See, so the way it works when you write is, at least the way it works for me is, you can only you can only write well when it kind of flows. Okay, you don't just sit down and say, "Okay, well now I have to do, I have to work on this now." That might work, or it might not. And it definitely works if that's what you do for a living. <laughs> well, yes, but then it will take a lot longer to produce. Like you can sometimes. Three paragraphs can take forever to crank out because it's just it just won't flow. Sure. And then there's other times where you can just have all these ideas and you just want to put them down. I know, but you're talking about right? ideal circumstances versus yes, everyday, right? Yes. And it is very much true that there's no such thing as good writing. There's only good editing. And I edit constantly. I mean, do not think for a minute that what you see in the in the finished product that that is how it came out. Absolutely. That is after multiple revisions. And, but you uh, have you have a perfectionist streak as well. I do, unfortunately. I think that delays uh, a lot of things. Or, but so now, thankfully, writing isn't all I do. I also do the podcast, for example. I also uh, do, you know, p- news posts. I mean, that that are that don't necessarily. Well, it depends. Sometimes they'll require a lot of research. For example, if I have to refute a heresy Francis uttered, right? Um, but if it's if it's something newsy, like just like, oh, look at what just happened. Like uh, there's this big sacrilege in this church where they had some whatever festival and, and they're all dressed up as perverts or something. Yeah, you know? I'm trying to think of these news events, whether it's Amoris Letizia and then you just basically had ongoing coverage, like page will be updated. Yes. You know, and then their links are appearing yes. every few hours. So that's what you're talking about when some event happens and suddenly all of that has to be pushed aside and you've got to deal with Well, like so yeah, so that's one thing is you I'm constantly on the lookout for breaking news. And I constantly have to evaluate is what I'm looking at breaking news or is it breaking is it news is it breaking news? Is it that and also does it take priority over what I'm working on right now? Mm. Um and it might or it might not. And um the interesting thing is that I see. I think I don't really. Obviously, I don't know who's all visiting Novus Ordo Watch, but I I have reason to think 
just based on comments you sometimes get on Twitter. That well, you can see in your analytics if you have Vatican City visitors, potentially. Yeah, I haven't checked for that in a long time. Uh, I doubt it. They would probably be on a VPN anyway, um, so it wouldn't show. But <laughs> They're not so careful. Anyway. <laughs> I don't think so. You, you, think, you think the Vatican's a very careful place where they... Things don't get leaked out. Yeah, true, true. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. See, I'd love to see your analytics. <laughs> but so so, but I think I have reason to believe that a lot of the people who visit Novos Arch really are not state of Acontists and don't really care to be. But they do value the website for the news content and for the commentary and for the research, and which which is one reason why I put I, I place a lot of emphasis on breaking news stories because. If Novos Ordo Watch is one of the first websites to cover a story, then people don't have much of a choice but to go to Novos Ordo Watch, do mm-hmm. they? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what they... So I remember one of the biggest, in terms of clicks, hits, one of the biggest stories on Novos Ordo Watch of all time was the death of, uh, I think the full name escapes me now, that Anglican uh, Bishop Palmer... Uh, he was a charismatic Anglican, evangelical Anglican was mix. It Tony Palmer. Tony Palmer, maybe that. Uh, Tony Palmer, who was a close friend to Francis. Everybody is. Right, I know, right? And when he died, th- th- nobody was covering it yet. The only reason I knew about it is because I'd seen the Facebook post. But you know, not everybody has Facebook, and so I was the only blog post that basically just referenced that Facebook post and said Tony Palmer has died. And that was significant because of uh, Francis' association, although I don't remember the, the details now off the top he, of my I head. I think he'd appeared at one of his conferences by video. and Yes, and maybe was going to do were, something with Francis or whatever. But so there was, there was – it's not like I don't just re- report on Anglican clergy. I mean it, it really was very much uh, something to do with Francis. And so the fact that he died was huge. And when I, I – I, I probably was maybe the or one of the first websites to – post about his death. And so that was the only website other than Facebook that that had something on his death. So when people Googled it, this is the only website that came up and they had nowhere else to go, mm. at least for that initial window of time. And so by, by being among the first to break news, of course, you have to make sure it's true and accurate. You can drive a lot of web traffic um, uh, you can drive a lot of people interested in Novo Sordo Watch, um, excuse me, interested in the, that particular news story, who at other times would never even dream of visiting Novo Right, they're Sordo just Watch. clicking through for research, and then they come to the site, and then who knows who right. you can pick up. From and so, you know, some people might think, well, why are, you, why are you concerned about web traffic? Well, no, we don't make any money from the web traffic at all. In fact. In fact, it actually costs more. To have to, it's tiered, right? I mean, so it's not like you might have to explain that to some of the older listeners who don't understand why you have to pay when you get traffic. Yes, quite simply because so the web hosting company is the company you pay that uh, houses, if you will, all the files that make your website your website. So when somebody goes to novelsordonwatch.org and wants to connect, wants to visit that website. Request a file, you could say. Right. You're basically requesting a file from a computer. Well, that computer is not in my home. That computer um, has to be in a, well, technically it doesn't have to be, but it it had better be at a professional web service data center because those are equipped with high-tech 
uh, web servers that can handle the traffic. See, what happens is that when you have too many people trying to make that connection to Novus Auto Watch, if you don't have a professional web server, it will simply die. It will show no website. Hmm. That's the denial of service, right, is what that's called. And so you need to pay a professional web host so that if all of a sudden, let's just say, just imagine if when Francis dies, okay, there's going to be a huge amount of people going to Novus Ordo Watch simply because I'm going to have an announcement on there about it. Enormous hosting yes. bill that month. And exactly. And so the, <laughs> the, the, the web host, the, the data center needs to be capable of serving all those requests so that the website doesn't go down. So that means there's technology uh, and there are people behind that technology that need to be paid. And of course, ultimately, that will depend on how many visitors you get. So they charge by visitors. It's not by the individual visitor, but it's tiered, like up to, I don't know, 100,000 people, say, per month, you pay this much in hosting fees. And then, you know, uh, it, it, it obviously, the, the, the higher you go in numbers, then the more you have to pay. So that's completely normal, and that's completely cool. But uh, the reason I am trying to drive more traffic uh, to the website is simply because you want to impact more people. You want the information to get out to as many souls as possible. So there is no financial incentive for me at all to do that. Uh, we have no right, advertising. financial disincentive. Disincentive. But the, the, the Novel Sorta Watch doesn't exist to make money again, right? And so um, it is to get the message out. And people, even if they don't spend money, a lot of people will go on there and say, oh my goodness, what kind of crazy website is this? And never click again. But at least they've been exposed to the name Novus Auto Watch. They may remember the tagline. They may think it's completely kooky. And in fact, I'm sure there are people listening right now that will say, oh yeah, I used to think that's a completely kooky website, but now I'm not so sure anymore. <laughs> right? Uh, it's only slightly good. I remember, you know, when Francis was first elected and, of course, you know, I had my tweets out there and denouncing him and, and all these things. And, and people were like, oh, you're, you're completely nuts. You give him a chance and do this. And I say, no, you, you don't understand. We already know who Jorge Bergoglio is. Check the internet. Uh, yes. So uh, th- this man is not the pope. And, there he is with a yarmulke on. Yes, exactly. And uh, there, nothing good is going to come of this. And so at first you're denounced. You know, uh, you're dismissed, you're laughed at, but a lot of people I think that laughed at us then are not laughing anymore. And I won't mention any names now, but I think I know a few, uh, and that's okay. And I mean, I'm not trying to say, oh, look, you know, I'm just so smart and I saw it all coming. It's just, it's just that um, you could. It all goes by the same Catholic principles. You know, everything rests on the the, the true faith. And so, you know, when a mo- another modernist is elected, we don't have to wait for him to see how he does, okay? Like the remnant was first trying to do. The remnant was first hoping for the best and, you know, pray for the Holy Father and, and maybe he'll, you know, Pius IX was a reading, liberal. Reading Francis through Benedict. At first, oh gosh, Zulstor, he long gave that up, right? And Mr. Zulstorff, uh, reading Francis through Benedict. Yes, right. they, they dropped all of that stuff. Right. I was denouncing them. Back in those days, it said, stop trying to spin everything Francis says into orthodoxy. It's it's nonsense. That's He's he's not a concern. Michael Voris. Bam! Thank you. Michael Voris. That was one of the Vortex episodes, the BAM episode. And I, I've got, I saved it. In fact, it's still on YouTube and on, on his website. You can still watch it. 
he was spinning Francis into the super conservative well, Holy that's what Father. You, that's what you do in the vortex. You spin things up. You spin things, exactly. That's, uh, yeah. So we've gotten the truth direct- and advertising. We've got the director's cut of how Novus Ordo Watch got to present day and the increasing traffic. Where do you see Novus Ordo Watch going? And, and put obviously situated within the situation in the church now. Well, as I said earlier, I am not uh, a man who has all these great visions of the future and these ideas about, uh, you know, grandiose things. Um, I, all I'm interested in is, or all I'm focused on is continuing to uh, crank out good and uh, important, useful content. And um, if we ever get to a point where we're, uh, where the finances are there for that, I'd very much like to hire somebody. Uh, another person uh, to help with it, and we could put out more content. But that's not, I mean, again, that's a huge risk, especially for that person. If you're, you know, asking someone to give up a quote-unquote regular job, especially if it's somebody with a wife and children, because I actually have somebody in mind <laughs> whom I would love to hire, but that's a huge commitment, and uh, that you, you just, you don't know the future. So you, you don't want to hire someone and then six months later tell them, sorry, sure. it's not working out. Sure. But uh, that's one thing I can see. But uh, other than that, I mean, I guess we're all just waiting for, there's definitely. I was going to say, for anyone anxiously hoping to apply for said position. No, I'm not, I'm not taking applications. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, it's, it has to be somebody I know very well and, and very much trust and so on. But um, it's, uh, well, so what's going, we know that there's two big milestones coming up in the Novus Ordo Church, that the writing is on the wall. The death, death of, of Benedict, Benedict the 16th. 16th and the death of Francis. And it sure isn't clear who's going to die first. <laughs> okay? I mean, I know everybody thought in 2013. It's a photo as, finish. Right? Well, we know that whoever dies will become canonized. So oh, absolutely. whatever happens, santo subito. Yes. And you know, I'll make a prediction right now. If Francis dies first... Uh, the so-called Father Zulstorf will be selling or giving away bumper stickers that say "Re-elect Ratzinger." Well, I mean the Benev- <laughs> the Benevacontists—that's an ideal situation for them because the the nightmare scenario for the Benevacontists is that Benedict goes, and then who you know is there some Cardinal Siri situation in which you know Benedict has secretly laid hands on somebody? Oh, I'm going to say right now, if there is such a situation, his supporters are going to say it's Genswein. <laughs> okay, just because that was his private secretary, right? He would have been his confidant, right? And you know, Benedict did make him a Novus Ordo bishop just before he stepped down. Why do you think that was? Mm. Yeah. No, I, I have n- I have no idea what's going to happen, and uh, with that, you know, uh, and, and I am not very good at predicting the future. I, I'd like to think that I am, but I, I'm not. Francis is a loose cannon. You have no idea what he's going to do. Um, but I think it's quite possible that Francis dies before Benedict. That's really interesting. And that would, well, you I heard honestly, it here. You heard it here first listeners. Yeah, that's right. No, I mean, see now this is an interesting thing. Once Benedict dies, what kind of a funeral will he get? I guarantee you he will get a papal funeral. It will be as if the Pope had died, except it's going to be presided over by Francis. It's a grotesque situation mm. because the liturgy for that isn't even there. If the Pope dies, there is no Pope. 
right? So they, I'm sure they'd have to make some sort of... They'll, honestly, knowing Ratzinger... Well, not that I really know him, but from what I've learned about Ratzinger, I wouldn't be surprised if he already has, has made composed. up his own liturgy for the Pope Emeritus. With the music. Yeah. Knowing him, yeah. Yeah. And then, who knows? Maybe they die both in the same week or something. I mean, it, the chaos is unimaginable. So you'll have, right? the, you'll, have, you'll have a conclave for the Benevacantists, and then you'll have a... A regular conflict. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think that Benevacantism is going to have too much of a following after Benedict dies. Um, th- there'll be some. Do you see it as a halfway hearts. house? You think that they, they, he dies and those people become set of a contest? Not really, because uh, well, they might say whoever succeeds Francis is not the true pope. That I can see, mm-hmm. but they're not going to say the last pope was Pius XII because they could be saying that already. So they have a new branch of set of a contest, possibly. Yes, yes, uh, very much so. And I think you actually probably already have a few that, that think Ratzinger stepped down, he's not Pope, and Francis isn't either. Uh, but but John Paul, I mean, Benedict was. Well, and, and you know. In terms of people's practices, it always comes down to Father Jakarta's famous saying that many people are set of a contest, they just don't know it yet. Yeah, they yeah, haven't, exactly. They haven't examined everything. Yes. Well, we've certainly examined quite a bit in this interview, coming to you from an undisclosed location. And we thank you for coming to this undisclosed location to record this and give people insight. Many things, even though we've had a working relationship for many years, I didn't know about your story. And I think many other people will find it fascinating as well. And on behalf of those listeners, thank you for all your hard work. Thank you for those uh, long sleepless nights. We we don't know how you possibly get it all done, but we're grateful that you do. And uh, keep going. And uh, I encourage other listeners, if you're not a monthly supporter, please go over and it's very easy. You can just sign up in a few minutes and and make sure that Novus Ordo Watch keeps watching. Thank you. It's uh, novusordowatch.org is the website address and uh, tradcast.org is the specific webpage for the podcast. Where you can go and hear that voice more frequently and regularly. Very and true. Thank you for coming, Mario. All right. Thank you, Stephen, and thank you, listeners. Thank you.